William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, today, this episode is bigger than our podcast can contain. I have thought many ways long and hard about how to discuss this particular subject, and honestly, we've done, what is it now, is it like 50 or 60 episodes on the history of William Branham? I think this will be 60. 60. So if we were to combine all of our research on this one key figure in William Branham's ministry, the most important figure in William Branham's ministry... 60 podcasts would not even begin to paint the picture of this story. I've tried for many years, as you know, to try to unravel that history and that connection. And it is so intricate that you really cannot, in the course of even a hundred episodes, you can't even really paint the picture in a way that people fully grasp just how significant this is. But this is, without question, the most influential, the most important, and the most significant person in the latter rain movement, in William Branham's ministry in his life. He was the building block from which all other building blocks were strongly influenced in the wrong direction. You're right, John. I mean, Roy Davis's life, you know, as complicated and twisty and turny as William Branham's life is, um, multiply that by a factor or something else, and you're going to get Roy Davis. Roy Davis is even more shifty and more, I mean, and his life is such a fascinating uh, thing to look at, and fascinating in the sense that it is infamous and diabolical in the worst extremes. You know, it's like reading about Nazis, and, you know, it's on, the, yeah. it's on par with reading on Hitler or Paul Schaefer. This guy is, this guy's a monster, and... Reading his life and, and looking into that is, is something else. And I would say, after William Branham, he is probably the second most uh, investigated guy I know that I've certainly looked at in all of this myself, just because of of the importance of, of him to this topic. You know, I'm a big Marvel fan. I think I've exposed that through our podcast with uh, Jam- that I'm doing with James. But <clears throat> this key figure, if you were to—I I was talking to the cultish guys, and they, they were— referencing Dowie, and they said, Dowie is like your kingpin in the Marvel Universe. And I got to thinking about it. (laughs) It's very much the same. Well, this one particular figure is so big that he's bigger than a kingpin. Um, There was this television show years ago called Heroes where there was a villain, one villain that could uh, take his, I guess, his finger or something and slice the head off and get whatever was the superpower of each person. And then he would absorb it, and he would become this evil mind and this other evil mind and then combined he was the most powerful villain that could ever exist well if you take a step back and look at roy davis this is the most powerful villain in americanized christianity that could ever exist yeah and like you mentioned we could do a very lengthy podcast series just dedicated to roy davis because there's all kinds of stuff (laughs) he was up to that um, doesn't have a necessary obvious connection to William Branham, which is incredibly interesting. Um, and 
you know, we've just kind of glossed over some of that in our past episodes, but, um, and, and today we're probably still just going to kind of be high level looking at what was going on right in the critical years with William Branham and Roy Davis, and still not even diving nearly as deep as we could into this. Uh, but as it relates to William Branham and the message, um, this is something really important that we need to, to discuss. And I am really looking forward to today's episode. <clears throat> we have been needing to get back to Roy Davis for quite a while, and we're kind of bringing the focus back to him here for this episode, probably the next one, too. And we, we specifically want to look at what Roy Davis was up to in the late 1950s and the 1960s and the nature of his relationship with William Branham in those years. But before we do that, uh, we should give just a quick summary of the relationship before between William Branham and Roy Davis leading up into the 1950s. And I'll just do that real quick. So Roy Davis was a terrible human being, as we have already said. He was a founding member of the 1915 Ku Klux Klan. He was involved in all kinds of crimes, rapes, murder, theft, child molestation, kidnapping, you name it. Roy Davis was a bad guy, and he rose up the ranks, and he eventually became the second in command of the Ku Klux Klan under William Simmons in the 1920s. And in those years, he was working also with Caleb Ridley, the national chaplain of the Klan, and they were working to build a new religious denomination called the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God. Somehow, um, Roy Davis and William Branham intersected in those years, and William Branham started working with Roy Davis, um, certainly by the late 1920s, if not sooner. Uh, we covered this kind of in episodes 3 through 11. And if you want to go back and get all the details, you can, you can get it in those episodes. And the headquarters of Roy Davis's denomination was moved to Jeffersonville in early 1930, and William Branham was serving as an elder in that headquarters church, where he more or less became assistant pastor of the Jeffersonville headquarters of the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God denomination. But then one church service, um, Roy Davis gets arrested off the platform in the middle of a church service, would have had to been right in front of William Branham, and Roy Davis was carted off to jail. And a long story short, Roy Davis's church burnt down, he fled... He fled town, and then Roy Davis ended up in prison. William Branham took over the congregation, moved them up the street, and started the Branham Tabernacle. This is all deeply covered up history in the message. And through all that, Roy Davis was the man who converted William Branham to Christianity, baptized him, ordained him as a preacher, sponsored his first tent meetings in 1933, and took him on um, his first revival tours. So... From there, things kind of get quiet while Roy Davis is away and in prison, but as you come into the 1950s, Roy Davis steps back into the picture, and he and William Branham are working together again. And that relationship becomes increasingly disturbing with time, because by the time you get to 1959 and 1960, Roy Davis has rose up to the rank of Imperial Wizard, or leader, of the original Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Right, Roy Davis climbed his way all the way to the top, and became a national leader of the KKK. And just to emphasize how significant he was in the overall scheme of what was happening in American Christianity, remember in our podcast we've talked about the Ku Klux Klan rising into fame and power and control of government systems and a congressional inquiry in which William Upshaw, who also worked with Branham and Davis, helped to save somewhat the Klan, how it splintered. Well, after this happened, there was this significant splintering of 
the movement itself, and Davis had rose up to become the second in command of the 1915 Ku Klux Klan. He and William Joseph Simmons, the man who created the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, work very closely together because Davis helped write the bylaws and the rituals of the 1915 Ku Klux Klan with Simmons. Davis became Simmons' partner in sharing debates and Klan speeches, and he was actually on tour with um, Simmons in several different areas. You can find that research on the website. Well, when the Klan splintered, they formed an even worse white supremacy group called the Knights of the Flaming Sword, which we did cover in our past historical research uh, podcast. But from there, after that movement dissolved, Davis be- starts working with John Roach Straton, who was um, he was starting this religious movement called the Supreme Kingdom, and he joined forces with Caleb Ridley, who was the Imperial Clud, I think it's called, the Supreme Religious Chaplain of the Klan, and they started their movement together. Davis was a national director for the Fundamentalist League in America, which covers an array of people we've talked on our podcast. That's how Davis becomes connected to Gerald Winrod and you know to other key figures. So this was a very, very important man, not just in white supremacy, but also in American fundamentalist religion, especially throughout the southern United States. Right. And the 1930s and 1940s were a really bad time for the Klan. Their membership had collapsed. The government had cracked down on them. A lot of their leaders had been put in prison, like Roy Davis. And the Klan had fractured into several different competing regional groups. And it was no longer a centrally controlled organization and unified command structure as you start moving into the 30s and beyond. So when Roy Davis um, would have been let out of prison, he would have found the Klan was broken into multiple different regional groups with independent leadership structures. And sometimes those regional Klan groups were cooperating with each other. Other times they were competing with each other. And so when Roy Davis got out of prison, um, he went to the Los Angeles area where the Klan on the West Coast was headed by Gerald Smith, right? And Gerald Winrod yeah. had been out in that region too, like you mentioned. So people that that, that Roy Davis already knew before his prison time. Um, and Gerald Smith and Wesley Swift, the, the minister from Angelus Temple, was the spokesperson of the Klan at that time. Okay, And the California Klan had a number of ties to Pentecostal churches in L.A., which is very well documented. We went through that in episode 29, if you want to check that out. And as you come into the late 1940s and early 1950s, William Branham and Roy Davis were both moving among the same circles of fundamentalist Pentecostals on the West Coast. Yeah. In all of this time, Davis is forming a new religion, what would eventually become the message cult. This this new religion, William Branham actually was speaking on behalf, which we'll get into it later in the show, but... He was speaking on behalf of Roy Davis's Pentecostal sect as a he was a bishop in it really, up until the 1950s. But on the 1920 side of things, Davis was being kicked out of several churches. Whenever he went to prison the first time, it's it's a crazy interesting story because this is a man who was a grifter from town to town. He had multiple churches, and he would basically 
suck the money out of a town until he burned it and then moved to the next town. Well, while he's doing this, while he's moving himself into a position of pastor and then evangelist, he would go evangelize and start another church while he was evangelizing. And the first church had no idea of the second one and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And to the extent that Davis had churches throughout Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, into Georgia, and I think he made it as far as South Carolina. And he was an evil mind. He realized that he could get away with practically anything. So in the state of Georgia, he had one wife and children by her. In the state of Texas, he also had another wife, and they didn't know about each other. And the interesting backstory, which it's way too big for this podcast, that <laughs> there's several interesting stories, but <clears throat> leading up to his capture for somewhat, I guess you could call it organized crime. He and his brothers created this band of, it wasn't bank robberies, but it was bank forgeries. And he got caught because the wife that he had in Georgia was connected to a person who had family in Texas. And Davis is on revival tours, and the lady from Georgia who went to that, who had a sister who went to that church that Davis operated in Georgia happened to go to one of his revivals in Texas and saw him and a different wife. And she was like, wait a minute, that guy, <laughs> I know that church. He's back in Georgia. He has a different wife, and uh, they're, they're ex I think they're expecting or they had a daughter. But so they caught him, and she was very, very vocal to the extent that it made news all the way back into Texas. Here's this guy, and the Texas Rangers got wind of it, and there was this uh, – sheriff that <laughs> went Texas justice on him and went out. I think they found him in South Carolina and pulled him back into Texas. It's a fascinating story. Again, it's bigger than this podcast can hold, but this is the type of person with the type of evil mind that was literally the origin of what we would call the message cult today. It's something else, John, when you examine this guy's life. Uh, yeah, you know, he had one wife and family in Texas. He had a second wife and family in um, Georgia, which was also, uh, then he had a third woman he wasn't even married to that he was living with in Indiana, you know. so <laughs> <laughs> And probably more that we don't even know about. <laughs> I know. He he had multiple fan He was certainly a bigamist. I mean, I think that would be the uh, official term for what he was doing was bigamy. He had basically... He was had all these multiple lives he was living simultaneously, and, and all these other people didn't know the other life existed. It's really, I mean, it, it's like something out of, a, out of a crazy movie or something. Yeah, and just pause and think about William Branham's stage persona. When, when people hear that he had a stage persona, they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Well, think about, he's touring with Davis in the early years. We've placed him in, what was it, 1928. We can confirm he was at a revival with Roy Davis and the Supreme Religious Chaplain. His mentor in the revival system was a man who had not only stage personas, but he had entire lives that were completely fictional <laughs> lives. So this mentor of William Branham shows him that, hey, you can go on tour and you can become anything. You can be anyone you want. Well, that's what William Branham did, and he learned this from Davis. Right, because Davis basically just reinvents himself everywhere he goes. Uh, you know, in one town he is a, oh, in this town I'm going to play the Christian missionary going to Egypt. 
and in this town I'm going to play the Baptist theologian, you know, and <laughs> and in this town I'm going to like he he puts on a different face, a different act. Um, in one town he's a an in, farmer's insurance agent, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's he does all kinds of stuff. He, I mean, he was with Pancho Villa in Mexico doing stuff. I mean. The stuff that we, Roy Davis was involved in is incredible. He's in Texas with the Stamps Quartet. I mean, how how do you do this? I don't know how you do this, but, I mean, he somehow pulled off. I mean, not just like one or two or three different lives. I mean, he's probably living 10 or 12 yeah. different lives, right? So, I mean, this man is a, a uh, criminal genius. I mean, Roy yeah. Davis is a criminal genius. And what's interesting, you know... When you look at all of those different things, those different lives that he lived, some of it was fiction. He would go to a town and he'd say, hey, I'm this, and he wasn't this, whatever it was. But in some cases, like <laughs> he said he was an original member of the Stamps Baxter, the Stamps Quartet. Um, I'm familiar with the Stamps Baxter Quartet. I actually have some CDs somewhere of, of the old records. But <clears throat> he was he was a member of this. Well, they believed it to the extent in California that he was the MC of what would be, you know, the California National Gospel Quartet <laughs> Convention. It was a big deal. But he was, this is also interesting. I've looked really long and hard last night trying to confirm it, but as he's burning his past bridges, he, he's first with the Baptist church till they kick him out. They realize he's a bigamist and he's, he's no longer allowed to be a missionary in the Baptist church. That's where William Branham gets the name missionary Baptist because he was this. Well, Davis gets kicked out and he goes to the church of God and he pretends he's a Pentecostal and he becomes this. Well, they were going to create a, um, institution called the Davis McPherson College. And I cannot confirm that it's Amy Simple McPherson, but if you look at all of the connections, he's talking in this same statement, he says, Dr. Davis is president of the Davis McPherson College and one of the national directors of fundamentalists. Well, if you look at those connections, it strongly suggests that this was an Amy Simple McPherson connection to Roy Davis, because we have you know, McPherson's church is connected to Gerald Winrod. Winrod is in the Fundamentalist League. So this is a big, big deal. Right. I mean, we, we know quite a number of the people in that circle were definitely preaching, teaching, attending, visiting Amy Simple McPherson's church, uh, the Angelus Temple. It It seems like her church was a magnet for these people. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure why, you know, but... For whatever reason, I mean, these people were were in orbit around her church, and it stayed this way up until the late 40s and, and really even the early 50s, I think it's fair to say, um, you know, after long after she had done passed away. Um, and, and it's bizarre, you know, you got all the, you got these quasi-Nazi figures, neo-Nazi figures, Klan figures, um, all in orbit around there and the people that actually produce the christian identity movement are all just on the sidelines of foursquare and the angelus temple and again yeah here roy davis who is one of the top leaders of the clan again it seems like he has also a link to amy simple mcpherson and it's it's bizarre stuff john and there's enough there to let us know there's something going on 
in that church, I mean, and again, I'm not even saying Amy Semple McPherson was involved in it. I mean, this is a mega church, right? Who knows? You know, you got a church with a hundred departments. Do you think Amy Semple McPherson knows what's going on in every single department? I don't think so, right? But something is going on there that she may or may not even be aware of that is a breeding ground for this stuff. Yeah. And I think we mentioned it in the podcast, or maybe I did in one of the little shorts, but McPherson had connections to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, she, whenever she had her big kid kidnapping fiasco, the Klan is the one who started backing her and started uh, this very public campaign to save her. So, <clears throat> again, you can't openly say that she was connected directly to Roy Davis because this was a very secret organization. There's no way to get under the covers of this and see who were all of the people and how were they connected. They keep all of that information secret, but we can see all of these indirect connections. And because of those indirect connections, you can kind of piece together the puzzle and see what groups were working together. It, again, it strongly suggests, especially because Davis has the Davis McPherson College, it strongly suggests that there was a very, very close tie to them to Amy Simple McPherson, or at minimum, Amy Simple McPherson's movement, which, you know, this whole thing seems to be connected to. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely people in the movement who are part of this neo-Nazi, white supremacy, Christian identity stuff. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they are there um, in the movement. Um, And Again, my opinion is over time they were gradually pushed out. I mean, I don't think Foursquare is this way at all anymore, but they at one point were a element within Foursquare um, before, certainly before the 1950s. Um, it's something else. You know, there is a, there's a place in Texas called Idabel too, John. Um, Idabel. Oh, yeah. That's a Anything big deal. Anything you want to, yeah, that might be worth sharing a little bit about the little town of Idabel. Yeah, that's a big connection. I, you know, there's all of these weird Texas connections that I keep stumbling across. And <clears throat> Idabel, Oklahoma. See, Roy Davis was, again, he had all of these churches from Texas into Oklahoma, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina. Well, one of the hot spots was in Idabel. And Idabel was just slightly northeast of Paris, Texas. I'm in contact with the Davis historians who say that. The Davises, um, even though Roy Davis was born in a different city, the, the family unit kind of migrated into the Paris area, Paris slash Detroit, Texas, um, you know, in that range. Well, <clears throat> William Branham says that his mother was from uh, Oklahoma, and she came down into Paris, Texas. And I found this years ago, and I was trying to make the connection between Branham's uh, mother and father and Davis in the early years, but I never could could quite make it because at that time I did not realize that Davis had an Oklahoma church. But I've since learned, and I think since publishing the first, you know, the Preacher Behind the White Hoods book, <clears throat> Davis had an Oklahoma church, and he's in the newspapers a few times in that church getting a new car, being the pastor, going on evangelism trips. So he's from Idabel, Oklahoma which strongly suggests that there was at least, at minimum, some influence there. I can't, again, make a direct connection. And you've also got John Osteen, who's from Paris, Texas. So you've got you know, all of these different connections that are at least, at minimum, in the same area. And Paris, Texas, you can look it up on Wikipedia, it is notorious for 
the lynchings of black people in the South, they were they were extremely, you know, widespread white supremacy in Paris, Texas. So you've got this hot spot of white supremacy, and you've got all of these different connections to William Branham, who are from the same area, and many of these men from the same area start joining in the same movement. So while again, while you can't make direct connections between them, you've got all of the different puzzle pieces that begin to form a you know a picture from the puzzle. It's it's interesting stuff, you know, when you realize that a lot of these guys are from really the just the same region, um, uh, just even the same couple of counties. Honestly, like Kenneth Hagen is from that area. Yeah. Um, William Branham's mother's family is from that. Like William Branham's family is from that area. Um, it it all kinds of unusual stuff, and and again. Obviously, we have no idea. Did these people know each other back then? I mean, the population of that town was only like 2,500 back then, right? So there's pretty good odds they might have known each other to some extent anyway, at least as acquaintances. It's just interesting coincidences, if nothing else. Um, So as we kind of come back into the 1950s, we know Roy Davis was involved with different illegal fundraising schemes after he got back out of prison coming into the 1950s and... Again, we have very solid evidence that as we come back into the 50s, he's out of prison, that he's starting to intersect with William Branham again in those same years. Um, One example of that is the article we have in the Voice of Healing magazine. Let me, I have originals. Voice of Healing, this is the October 1950 edition. And in this magazine, um, you can see they ran a full-page article on Roy Davis in Voice of Healing, okay? And keep in mind, at the point in time that they are publishing this article, this man right here is a convicted felon who has been in prison, uh, recently out, who has been involved in molesting kids, raping, killing people, kidnapping, Theft, grand theft, grand theft auto. Okay, that man is guilty of all of those things already when they run this article (laughs) in Voice of Healing. And William Branham knows that. William Branham had watched this man get arrested and hauled off with his own eyes to the police to go to prison, okay? And they run this article here um, giving Roy Davis publicity in uh, Voice of Healing magazine. And as we've mentioned before, this article seems to include some veiled threats being made by Roy Davis towards William Branham. And, you know, I all we can do is speculate just a little bit here, but I, I wonder to myself if Roy Davis somewhat forced his way back in with William Branham. Um, and again, all we can do is just kind of speculate, but I can't imagine the way that this letter is wrote here in Voice of Healing that William Branham was happy about the things that Roy Davis said in this letter, because in this letter, Roy Davis is indeed flat out contradicting um, William Branham's life story that he's been telling everywhere he goes. Yeah, we talked about that. I can't remember if it was in a podcast or in one of the side episodes, but Roy Davis basically is outing William Branham, and I've had questions come in <laughs> about this because... I mentioned it casually that this letter was a threat against William Branham. Well, it really was. People, unless you know that William Branham is dishonest about his life story, you'll never catch it. But Davis is basically saying, no, no, no. Branham's whole story about him not being a Pentecostal and then, 
you know, his wife and child were smote down by God because he wasn't a Pentecostal and he avoided them. Davis clearly says, no, Branham is full of it <laughs> in this letter. And what's interesting is this is sent to the voice of healing. <clears throat> there is a significant, uh, another side story that we could do another episode on. There's a significant piece of information here because Davis is embedding himself in the revival movement. It's not just that he sent a letter. Davis, who already had, even before William Branham, he had this evangelistic slash healing ministry. And in fact, that's one of the things that birthed the church in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Davis had an alleged healing. You know, there was, <laughs> there was this big deal. Oh boy, I can heal people. <clears throat> well, he had done this before. This was, you know, a guy who had many stage personas. Well, in the 50s, Davis began to claim that, no, I've never done it before. And I just recently got this gift and oh, by the way, it just happened to come during the height of the latter rain revivals. So <clears throat> Davis is embedding himself back into this movement. He's becoming more vocal. He's not officially joined the Voice of Healing evangelist team because you won't find him throughout that. But what you will find is in Texas, <clears throat> he is so strongly supported in Texas that the Assemblies of God actually sponsor his debates on the Pentecostal faith in Texas. So he is getting very clearly involved and you have to kind of peel back the covers and see how he's involved because while all of this is in the public, there's also this big framework of things going on behind the scenes. Wow, you know, uh, another example that we could give of a time that William Branham and Roy Davis were together in the 1950s um, is a very famous event that happened in 1951, probably everyone in the message knows about, we've mentioned before, was the Congressman Upshaw healing, which happened at Leroy Copp's um, Calvary Temple in Los Angeles. So Roy Davis was the man who set up the Congressman Upshaw healing. He arranged for Congressman Upshaw to visit the meetings, and then Congressman Upshaw, you know, supposedly was healed at the meetings. Of course, again, we have pretty solid evidence that that was a hoax. But let me let me read one question on that, or one quote on that. William Branham said, this is in a 1950 sermon, he says, And one night yonder, before tens of thousands of people, when Roy Davis sent him out there, and he moved him in a wheelchair after Roy Davis prayed for him and hundreds of others. And... When you read quotes like this and others and just carefully examine what William Branham is saying about the up, the Congressman Upshaw healing, it certainly reads to me that he is saying that Roy Davis was the man pushing Congressman Upshaw's wheelchair, okay? At, that's how I read these quotes. I mean, I'd, and he moved him in a wheelchair. I mean, I, it seems pretty clear to me he's yeah. saying Roy Davis is the one pushing the wheelchair. And so this quote, for example, would put William Branham and Roy Davis together at Leroy Copp's Calvary Temple in 1951. Yeah, the Congressman Upshaw story is another one that's <laughs> far bigger than this podcast can contain. Um, I document the history somewhat in the Preacher Behind the White Hoods book, but Dave, Davis did introduce Congressman Upshaw, and Congressman Upshaw posed as a quote-unquote wheelchair invalid. Now, we've got photographs, and you can do a Google search, and you can just search for Congressman Upshaw. You'll find he's very mobile. He's He does have a cane, and he needs a, 
apparently to his stage persona, he needs one cane to get around. But we have found where he has claimed healing, not just with William Branham, he had claimed healing long before this in other newspapers, back dating to, I think it was like 1915. I'll try to dig it up for the video portion of the podcast. But there were people who got angry with William Upshaw because he would be running down the aisles of Congress and his, his crutch wouldn't even touch the floor. And they said, well, what do you need these things for? And uh, well, there's one article, and I'll try to find it as well, but they were mentioning that, you know, with the modern inventions of the, I think it's back then the whalebone brace or something like this, with a proper brace on his leg, he doesn't even need, <laughs> had he had the injury that was still afflicting him, which there's big question, he wouldn't have even needed that with the brace. But at minimum, he was running, and at, you know, the very obvious flaw here, is that he was <laughs> using a crutch and getting around until Davis brings him to William Branham's healing revival. Then Davis, apparently, according to Branham, sits him in a wheelchair and wheels him up to the chair, and Branham says something to the effect that this man has been in beds and in wheeled chairs for 66 years, and God lifted him out in my ministry. And there were a large number of people there sitting in the crowd who said, oh, wow, this happened because I watched it happen. But there were also, Charles, there had to have been people there that knew Upshaw. Upshaw was very famous, very connected in the American Christianity, fundamentalist side of Christianity. They had to have known that <laughs> this man had already been out of a wheelchair. I know. It's something else, how William Branham exaggerated that miracle. You know, William Branham had us believe that this was a man who had been basically crippled for 50 years and was raised up out of a wheelchair. He didn't tell us that he already was able to walk with a cane for the past 50 years. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, come on. Um, what about that? So anyway, you know, there there's a number of... Um, there's a number of other William Branham quotes that put him together with Roy Davis at revival meetings in the 1950s. And I'm not going to read them all, but I will just give one more. So this will be a third example of, of Roy Davis with William Branham in the 1950s. And I'll read this quote. This is from a 1953 sermon, I Will Restore. Um, William Branham said, When Dr. Davis had ordained me into the Baptist church, so that would have been about 1930, when Dr. Davis ordained me into the Baptist Church, about 1930, when he stood there a few nights with here some time ago, now he's talking about something else, here some time ago in a religious meeting, he said, Now, Brother Branham, I'll have you speak for us tonight. That did me good. When he told me, said, I went up to Green's Mill that night when the angel of the Lord appeared to me. Okay, so here... What are they talking about? William Branham is talking about the 1947 Angelic Commission story here. We're, so we're dating this. Um, Roy Davis and William Branham here are, on, are talking about the Angelic Commission together. And he told me, said, and I went to the doctors and he said, you mean to tell me that with your seventh grade education, you are going to pray for potentates and monarchs? Okay. So that quote puts William Branham and Roy Davis having a conversation at a revival meeting sometime after the 1947 Angelic Commission, uh, Angelic Commission story, right? So this revival would put William Branham together with Roy Davis somewhere, somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s, right? And again, 
quotes like this, you got to read them carefully. But this shocks me because, again, just like the Upshaw healing or the voice of article, the voice of healing article, William Branham definitely knew who and what Roy Davis was by this point. Okay, he knows who and what Roy Davis is beyond a shadow of a doubt at this point in time. And William Branham is voluntarily choosing to partner with a man and voluntarily choose to, to give him public praise and recognition, voluntary cho voluntarily choosing to share the platform with him, right? Knowing full well that Roy Davis is a sex pervert, child molester, thief, kidnapper, right? William Branham knew all of that about Roy Davis, yet he is still working with him and we can find quote after quote after quote that puts them together even in the 50s okay and there is just no excuse for that none whatsoever but i mean this is just par for the course for william branham right and i think we've covered this in some of the prior episodes but understanding the denomination of faith that would become the message is also critical to understanding davis <clears throat> because roy davis had been kicked out of several church denominations. He was a Baptist until he was caught as a bigamist. He was a Pentecostal. He was a Church of God guy until he, you know, he got caught with frauds, thefts, uh, sex with underage girls, all kinds of different crimes that this man got caught with. And so these churches kicked him out and he can never return. But he's still so famous because of his white supremacy that he can easily hold a revival and people will still come to it in the South, which is, it's very interesting, Charles. But Davis got kicked out of these organizations, and so he said, I'm going to create my own. I'm going to create the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. And I'm going to say, I can be all of you guys. Even though you kicked me out, I can be you. And William Branham is adopted into this. He's ordained into this. And Davis creates his headquarters in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and starts planting all of these churches back in the early 30s. <clears throat> so William Branham is touring with that denomination as early as, early as 1928 or 9, I think we've placed it. Then he becomes a bishop in it, and Davis starts planting other churches. Branham becomes... One of the first church plants that we've identified is, um, or one of the early ones, I should say, not the earliest, is the Milltown, Indiana Church, which was a sister church of the Tabernacle. It was one of these things, Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. <clears throat> well, 1953, this is after the Voice of Healing and Latter Rain movements merged and then split and then William Branham is <clears throat> starting to be snubbed by Gordon Lindsay. Branham is holding in, I think it's Hammond, Indiana, or Connorsville, Indiana, a Pentecostal Baptist revival. And that is this sect. And that is very critical in understanding because at this point of time, the message was in its early stages of being birthed. So William Branham is still a, at minimum, a speaker, but he was a bishop in this sect. And the sect just kind of dissolved and disappeared. Well, when it disappeared, the message appeared. So it's as though, you know, like white supremacy shrouded in secrecy, it's as though the sect kind of morphed from what it was into what became the message cult of personality. Well, Roy Davis was the, I don't know what you'd call him, he was the pope of this organization. Right. Um, 
when Roy Davis went to prison and William Branham took over the headquarters church congregation in Jeffersonville, it's also very clear as you look at the newspapers, he's still touring like the, the circuit around here of churches that Roy Davis had started all the yeah. way back in the 30s and into the 40s. So, you know, he was still involved in as some sort of an overseer, bishop-type character with the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God, you know, after Roy Davis went to prison. And here, it's interesting, now in the healing revival years, like there's even newspaper articles like the one you pointed out, where William Branham is still going back to Pentecostal Baptist Church of God churches here in Indiana and holding meetings. And and I don't wonder if, if for example, that one there... The newspaper article you held up, that is June of 1953. I don't wonder if that's the same one that William Brandon was talking about in the last quote I read, where he was with Roy Davis talking about his 47 Angelic Commission story. Because um, why wouldn't Roy Davis be at the churches that he founded? You know, it's entirely reasonable to conclude he could have been there with William Branham. But at any rate, according to William Branham's own words, he and Roy Davis were working together, at least in some measure during the years of the healing revival, okay? But it clearly goes to a higher level, certainly by the time you come to 1958. And we covered this in a lot of detail in episode 26 and 27 and 28, and you can check that out if you want more details. But by by 1958, Roy Davis had become the Grand Dragon of Texas, which would be the regional leader of the U.S. clans in Texas. And Roy Davis in those years was spearheading an effort to stop integration of the public schools. And he was doing that in cooperation with Gerald Smith and Wesley Swift, you know, from the West Coast clan. So it's more than one clan organization involved in that. And they were masterminding all the protests at the Little Rock Nine incident. And again, there's very robust documentation to establish that. And at the same time Roy Davis is up to all of that, that's when William Branham started publicly supporting segregation for the first time. It's the same time that he came out vocally, very vocally, against integration of the public schools. 1958 is also when William Branham introduced the Serpent Seed Christian Identity Doctrine to the church. Um, it's also when he became very vocal opposing the Civil Rights Movement, opposing Martin Luther King Jr. All of that started in 1958 at the exact same time that Roy Davis has rose up to become regional leader of the Klan in Texas um, and is spearheading this effort to stop integration of the public schools. The serpent seed is also key to understanding just how deep the connections were to Roy Davis and the white supremacists that were underground until they began to emerge into the third wave of the Klan. You look back at that timeline, we've examined it, and it, it just fits like a zipper because William Branham pretends that he <laughs> is not in support of the Christian identity theology. In fact, there are quotes where he says that one blood created all mankind up until the point at which this exploded into the third wave of the Klan. Well, behind the scenes, Roy Davis is rising through the ranks and he's one of the first, if not the first, to unmask himself in public. Now, when he does it, he uses his middle name as an alias. His middle name was Elonza. And Davis had this history of using the name Lon instead of Roy. Again, right before doing this, William Branham introduces the Christian identity doctrine. And it's covertly introduced because he takes the racist 
words out of it, so he's not mentioning blacks or Jews, but the theology itself was exactly what Davis and what all the others were preaching as racist Christian identity doctrine. Branham would follow up later with the high-breeding doctrine, which, you know, combined it makes the same Christian identity. But Branham introduces this at the same time that Roy Davis is becoming extremely public and vocal in the Klan. Right, and and it, it's really just as simple as this. Wesley Swift was preaching serpent seed before William Branham, okay? So what is the most logical thing? An angel came to William Branham and gave him the exact same racist revelation that Wesley Swift had? Or William Branham learned it from these guys? I mean, that <laughs> or, his friends are around, okay? it just a third option, maybe Wesley Swift was the angel. <laughs> <laughs> Obvi- I mean, it's... When you're in the message, you're just too, you know, your mind is too warped up to be able to see these things. But no, William Branham learned serpent seed from these guys in the clan, right? Hands down, he learned this from the guys in the clan, right? And that is so hard for people in the message to, to hear. I'm telling you, William Branham learned serpent seed from the clan, right? In all the churches that teach serpent seed, you are teaching something that William Branham got and imported from the Ku Klux Klan, for goodness yeah. sakes, okay? That's hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. I mean, that makes you feel dirty, but it's the truth. That is the truth. And so as Roy Davis became the leader of the Klan in Texas, um, he was appointed into that position in Texas by um, Eldon Edwards, okay? Roy Davis was living in Oak Cliff, a Dallas suburb at that time. Eldon Edwards was the national leader of the main branch of the Klan over in Georgia, Three years ago, the United States Supreme Court ruled that separate but equal was not equal, and in effect, the law of the land was changed. And with segregation outlawed, the Ku Klux Klan again began to ride in the South. Crosses burned, bombs were exploded, some people were hurt. The most conspicuous and mysterious of the South's anti-integration machinery is led by 48-year-old Eldon Lee Edwards. He's married, he has no children. He works by day as a $92 a week automobile paint sprayer in his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. By night, berobed, he becomes the imperial wizard of the U.S. Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, said to be the Klan's most powerful group. So Edwards was based in Georgia. He goes to Texas. He has a meeting with um, Roy Davis. Roy Davis ends up appointed basically regional leader over Texas. And... um, Eldon Edwards was himself in a direct line of succession all the way back to William Simmons. So this is the main branch of the clan here that's now appointed um, Roy Davis as regional leader in Texas. Okay, <clears throat> And John, this might be a little surprising, but um, when I was interviewing all the some of the old timers in my sect of the message, I bumped into a couple of them that actually knew Eldon Edwards. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. I was pretty like I would just generally ask questions. Hey, do you remember this person? Do you remember that person? <laughs> yeah, a couple of them knew Eldon Edwards, John. Um, which again, uh, you hear these things like, "Wow!" Like, and you know, what do you remember about him? What was? But I don't think Eldon Edwards was ever in the message. But yeah, I know some people who who were acquainted with Eldon Edwards. And you know some other people that lived in Oak Cliff, right? Roy Davis was not the only famous person living in the Oak Cliff, Dallas suburb. Um, that's where Gordon Lindsay lived. That's where uh, I believe uh, Kenneth Hagen was living there at the time. You know, we could go down a list of people who were living in that suburb at the same time. And again, is it a coincidence? 
What do you think? Yeah. You know, I've worked with the Kennedy assassination historians, the people who are trying to piece together this big conspiracy theory. <clears throat> and at the time, I didn't know how significant Oak Cliff was, but it apparently was a hot spot for not only this type of fundamentalist religion and white supremacy merge, but you look at the Oak Cliff neighborhood and it's one of the key focuses of the government investigation because you've got all these key figures that were maybe not involved with the setting up of what would become the assassination, but they were at minimum involved with the very, very criminal underworld of white supremacy that was going on behind the scenes in Dallas. There, there's a lot. I mean, when you when you go through all the figures that we have mentioned in this podcast and you just kind of find out how many of them were living in Oak Cliff, Ray Hoekstra was was there. I mean, the amount of people living there, it will blow your mind. And again, you just, is it a coincidence? I mean, we have no idea that these guys, if they knew each other, if they didn't, but they're all living in the same Dallas suburb together. Uh, it's it's weird. <laughs> it's very much like a Leo Mercer park of sorts, right? It's this little communal neighborhood. I I don't know what to make of it myself. Um, I, but it it's it's oddly suspicious to me. Okay, but anyways, as you read through the newspaper reports and the FBI reports, we find that Eldon Edwards appointed Roy Davis to be Grand Dragon of Texas in 1958. And after that, a power struggle ensued between him and Roy Davis. And as that unfolded, Roy Davis expanded his control into the neighboring states around Texas. And by the time you get through 1958, Roy Davis was a leading figure of the Klan in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Then in 1959, um, Imperial Wizard Eldon Edwards died. And after he died... Roy Davis began claiming to be the new imperial wizard um, in newspaper reports, you know, to, to the followers of the Klan. And he began presenting himself more or less as Eldon Edwards' successor. And from 1959, Roy Davis was traveling all over the southern United States doing Klan recruitment. And by the time you get to 1960, it appears that Roy Davis was leading the largest KKK organization in the, in the United States. And most of uh, what I've just said here, you can piece that together by reading the newspaper articles, by the reading the FBI documents that have been released to the public, and especially if you look into the congressional report on the Klan that was put together by Congress after the Kennedy assassination. I mean, that's like 15,000 pages long of congressional investigation into the Klan. They dug all of this stuff up, you, and the leaders were all there testifying to Congress. So um, we're not, I mean, we're just saying what the Klan leaders said more or less in their testimonies to Congress. And so there's there's really no question about who Roy Davis was or what he was generally up to as you arrive in 1960. Roy Davis was one of the most powerful Klan figures in the United States, with most of his power being in the western southern states, especially Texas, especially Louisiana, especially Arkansas, and especially Mississippi. And remember, Davis is still, even though he is connected to this white supremacy underworld, he is also connected deeply to the fundamentalist religion. He was a leader of a Pentecostal denomination of faith, of which William Branham was a bishop. He was a very well-respected evangelist. He had a radio broadcast with, with his, uh, I think it was his daughter, it was called Jack and Granny. 
he was recognized with the Christian music because he had held this, you know, convention in California. Everybody in the American fundamentalist Christian is aware of Roy Davis. They know who he is. Well, coming up into 1959, as he unmasks himself, everybody who had, who was at that, you know, clan meeting or whatever that knows Davis from all of this religious background suddenly sees his face. Well, they make the connection. So then widespread throughout the South, word begins to spread that, oh, I know that guy. (laughs) I recognize him because he's one of the first that unmasked himself. And so as you get into the, you know, the late fifties, early sixties, Davis is somewhat outed as everybody knows who he is. He's very vocal, even in the newspapers. Well, William Branham still continues to drop his name and he drops his name in places where Davis is a hot, it's a hot spot for Davis's activities, such as in Texas, you know, in the cities in Texas. So William Branham is using the popularity of Davis to the white supremacy underworld and just dropping his name left and right. Now, there are cases where William Branham says, and Davis disagreed with me, but there are other cases where he said, and he's sitting right here, or he's supposed to be sitting right here, or I was supposed to meet him out in another place. I knew his travel itinerary. Well, who knows the travel itinerary of the imperial wizard of the clan, Charles? It's unusual, isn't it? You know, one odd coincidence also that I think is worth pointing out, maybe just coincidence, is that after Roy Davis took over the clan, so in those years when he was the leader, you know, 59, 60, 61, 62, it seemed that the clan started using the motto, yesterday, today, and forever. And when they advertised themselves with signs, with stickers, or what have you, the motto of the clan in those years was yesterday, today, and forever. And that is a really strange coincidence because that is remarkably similar to the motto William Branham used for his own campaign meetings, right? William Branham's motto was Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And again, maybe it's just a coincidence, right? But it is really strange that Roy Davis was using a motto that was a pure identical subset of William Branham's motto. It's odd. It's such a common Bible phrase, Charles, that you can't say, well, Branham could have just read the Bible. You can't just say that it was a white supremacy theme. But again, William Branham is connected directly to Roy Davis. William Branham is a bishop in the denomination of faith that Davis created that, oh, by the way, eventually transitions into <laughs> the message that I grew up in. That's It is the same denomination of faith that Davis planted in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And, you know, we've talked about it. Branham even mentions that when Davis left, he transitioned the church to his church. And we've went, we've walked through that history in the past. Well, there were other revivalists that used Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever, like George Jeffries of the Elam churches. They used it, but they're not connected to Roy Davis. (laughs) William Branham, who is connected to Roy Davis, deeply connected to Roy Davis, is using this motto that Davis is using. So while we can't say that it was a direct result of the Klan, we can say that they're both working together, they're both using the same marketing strategy. It, it's, it's just odd. There's so many odd, odd coincidences here that are entirely possible they're just coincidences, but 
uh, some of them are so like that are so interesting. I do think they're worth pointing out. So um, now a slight change of topic here, but there are some sources out there, John, which say that there was covert clan recruitment happening on the sidelines of William Branham's revival meetings. Okay, and when I look at these facts, like the ones we're talking about here today. I think there is a distinct possibility that there is truth to those claims. I think there is indeed a potential likelihood that there was indeed some level of clan recruitment happening on the sidelines of William Branham's meetings. And I believe we are justified in being suspicious about that because we know the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan was at some of William Branham's revival meetings, okay? And we know William Branham was bragging about the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan on stage at the meetings, okay? And the message people who pretend like none of this is true, I mean, I mean, I understand not everybody knows about this stuff, but, you know, I can put my hand on a Bible, John, and I could tell you the names of message preachers, including preachers, who, from their own lips, I heard them say they were involved with the Klan, okay? Is it every single old-timer? No, it's not. I certainly don't think that's true. Some of the old-timers are just as oblivious to it as, as you and I were. But something was going on back here. Absolutely. There was something going on back in these older days. And I know that is hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear. But we're laying out solid evidence here for you from William Branham's own words that he was holding revival meetings where the top leader of the KKK was there at the meetings with him. And if you'll just use your common sense, there's more than enough right there that you got to... I mean, something bad is going on here. Something is going on here. This stuff really happened. And if you were in the message, I know as terrible as it is to admit, we had some level of connection to these things. And... and that's something, you know, you just got to come to grips with. You know, I wish it wasn't true. I really wish this wasn't true. God have mercy. I wish this wasn't <laughs> true, John. I can say yeah. honestly and I can say truthfully, I was oblivious to this stuff up to the last couple of years I was in the message when I started to wake up. And I'm sure most other people in the message can say the exact same thing. We were just oblivious to this. But I mean, for goodness sakes, just compare the pictures. Just compare the pictures. William Branham's pastor. This man, Roy Davis, is, is the Imperial Wizard, the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. Here's an arrest picture of him. Here's his picture in voice healing. This is the same guy. And he was at the meetings with William Branham on stage and, and, and being called out from the platform and bragged up that it really happened. It really happened. And Shreveport, Louisiana, which is, if you know the message of William Branham and its history, it is one of the most significant cities for the message. You've got Jeffersonville, and you've got Shreveport. Until the later years, then you've got, you know, Tucson, Arizona. Shreveport is where all of the Branham-supported materials were published. Well, Shreveport was a hot spot for Roy Davis, the Klan activity, Upshaw, they knew Upshaw by first name basis in the newspapers in Shreveport. Shreveport was significant. Shreveport is where they held a very open marketing campaign. In, in fact, the picture you held up of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that was on banners all through Shreveport during those years. It's a big, big deal. Shreveport, Louisiana is one of the 
cities where Davis was very publicly supporting the Klan to the extent he put on the Klan robes and showed what it's like to look like a Klan <laughs> a Klansman in the Shreveport newspaper. That's how big of a deal this was. Pose for the newspaper in full Klan attire for the Shreveport public and newspapers. And John, so in 1961, while Roy Davis is is leading the Klan in that region of the country, he got arrested for cross-burning in front of the home of a United States congressman. Overton Brooks was the congressman's name. Here's an actual picture of the cross Roy Davis had burned in front of Congressman Overton's home. This is what got Roy Davis arrested there in that last arrest picture I showed. So they're burning a cross in front of the home of a United States congressman to intimidate him. And guess what? That made front page news. Of course it made front page news. Okay, all over that region. Okay, all over Shreveport. Everybody, everybody saw Roy Davis in the newspaper, photographs, pictures, being arrested for cross-burning in front of Congressman Overton Brooks' house. Okay? And the Shreveport area, John, like you mentioned, that is a major hub of the message. Even to this day, it's a major hub of the message. Um... That is where Voice of Healings was headquartered at at that time, and there are a significant number of prominent message churches in that region to this day. And John, I I hesitate to go how far in exposing these things because some of these people involved in this stuff are still alive, and you know, I'm just, I'm careful, you know, in what I say. But let me say it like this, okay? <clears throat> Don't you think the people in 1962 in 1963, 1964, 1965, don't you think the people sitting there in William Branham's Shreveport meetings, listening to him talk about Roy Davis in the Shreveport meetings, don't you think they knew who Roy Davis was? <laughs> He's all over the news, man. <laughs> One week, Roy Davis is front page news for cross burning. The next week, William Branham is bragging him up in his sermons. Don't you think they didn't know who Roy Davis was and who William Brandon was talking about? You know, people have asked me, was <clears throat> Jack Moore, or was he in the Klan? Was he white supremacist? If you look at all the information that we have access to, you can't make any direct connections. But here's a man who is one of William Branham's strongest supporters and promoters, who's in Shreveport, Louisiana, who gets the newspaper. There is no way that this man did not know that Roy Davis was the kingpin of the Ku Klux Klan. There's no way that he did not know this. And he also knew William Branham's sermons intimately. I mean, this is a guy who's preaching the message. He had to have known that William Branham is openly supporting Roy Davis, that William Branham was mentored by, ordained by, brought into the ministry by Roy Davis. He has to know that Davis was a Pentecostal instead of a Baptist. He has to know that William Branham's life story was pure fiction. This is the man who is publishing Branham's information, knows that it is fiction, and knows that there's this Klan connection. Was he in the Klan? I can't say that he was, but I can say it, <laughs> it looks pretty bad. <laughs> Let me read a couple quotes here from William Branham. This first one is from a sermon he preached called The Token. William Branham says, this is 1964, by the way, he says, I hope my old teacher is sitting here today, Dr. Roy E. Davis. How many of you know him? Amen, amen, amen. Right here at Fort Worth. He is perhaps sitting here, right? And John, you go listen to the tapes. You will hear people saying amen when he asked, do you guys know Roy Davis? Okay. People knew who he was talking about, okay? And 
they knew who he was. Okay, here's another quote. This is a week later from the last one. He says, Maybe old Dr. Davis is sitting here tonight, the old missionary Baptist preacher who preached, who baptized me in the faith. Okay, there's another quote. week later. And I just want to say, keep in mind, William Branham is preaching that sermon in Louisiana, just a few miles away where Roy Davis had been arrested and made front-page news for cross-burning, okay? Right where all that stuff is happening. And William Branham is on stage in that community saying, I really hope that cross-burning guy is here in my meeting tonight. Okay, that is the context of what is happening here, okay? And don't you think those old-timers in the message did not know who he was talking about? I mean, I'm not stupid. Are you stupid? I mean, what do you think, John? I mean, do you think you could reasonably sit there and not have known yeah. um, who he was talking about? I mean, you got to wake up here, right, if you're in the message. You just got to use some common sense. William Branham is telling his audiences that he hopes the man that they just saw in the news for cross-burning in a congressman's front yard was at church with them that day, okay? And he gets amens from the crowd when he says that kind of stuff. And message preachers want to tell us there's nothing going on here. There's nothing to see here. Are you kidding me? I don't think so, right? And the old-time message preachers who say none of this stuff ever happened, I mean, you guys need to really be ashamed of yourselves. Because it wasn't just William Branham at that meeting, okay? With the national leader of the KKK at that meeting. Raymond Jackson was at those meetings. Perry Green was at those meetings. Lee Vale was at those meetings. And a bunch more people I could name, some of whom are still living today. And you people want to go in cover-up mode on this stuff? I mean, I got a real problem with that. And, you know, I do believe God forgives people who repent. I do believe some people feel bad about this stuff, John. But all the lying to cover all of this stuff up is not okay, right? That's just sin on top of more sin. And if these guys out there hear this stuff, I mean, you guys need to quit lying and fess up. You guys were in church with the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And it's on tape, for God's sake. But let's take a moment and let's place ourselves into that history, Charles. And let's not place ourselves in it with our white skin. Let's imagine that you and I are a black person. I, ha I know people personally who were at the Shreveport meetings. They consider this to be the biggest event, the climax of the message, they say. They say, this is the climax of the message. This is where I had one person tell me this. I've mentioned before. One person told me this is where I realized that God was made manifest in the flesh of William Branham because I went to Shreveport. They're there at the Shreveport meetings. They're there where the Imperial Wizard has made front page news that every day that they wake up, if they've got a television in the hotel room, here's Roy Davis. If they've got a newspaper, here's Roy Davis. If they're in a coffee shop and the coffee shop has a television, here's Roy Davis. If they're standing on the street, here's people talking about Roy Davis. Well, let's picture ourselves with black skin, Charles. We're in a city that is largely controlled by white supremacy. We're segregated. We're told that we are filth that we cannot have we cannot use the same bathroom as a white person because we might infect them we are not allowed to ride in the front of a bus with the white people we have to get on the back and there's only a limited number of seats so if those seats are filled by other people with black skin i have to wait for the next bus and at night if i you know if i 
don't like this, if I'm vocal about not liking being treated like animals, well, I might get strung up by a rope. I might be lynched. I might be beaten. I might be killed. I'm living in mortal fear because I have black skin. And I stumble onto this revival by William Branham. And I'm in the city that is controlled by all of these white supremacists. And here's this man on the platform that I believe might be the messenger, Elijah, of our age. And suddenly he says, oh, bless Dr. Davis, the guy who brought me into this ministry. Well, they know who it is. They know that this is the man who is making their lives a living hell. Charles, the majority of people in the message have black skin today. The majority. We're talking millions of people with black skin. If, if those people could have been in Shreveport when William Branham is promoting, supporting, praising, making into an idol, basically, the imperial wizard of the clan that is a domestic terrorist organization that kills black people. Do you think those millions of people would be in this thing? They don't know. They have no idea. It's been hidden from them. They don't realize that <laughs> some of this stuff was done just to just to control people, John. That's all. Some of this, all this was, was just a, an evil effort to control people. It's terrible. You know, like you mentioned, William Branham's Louisiana meetings were a very popular destination, even for old-timers in my sect of the message, John. Um, quite a few of the old-timers told stories about going to William Branham's meetings in Louisiana. They were there when this stuff happened. I know they were. I even have a number of them on tape. Um, telling about their experiences, going to Louisiana meetings that we could play, right? I mean, I'm sure you heard those too. They were very popular meetings to go to, was William Branham's Louisiana meetings. And there's people passed away now, people I know are still living, who were sitting there in that church when William Branham was saying out loud how he wished the national leader of the Klan was in their meeting that night. And, I mean, you can pretend like it never happened, but, John, it it's something else. It, it, and it's just not my sect of the message either that was sitting there, but a lot of the early leaders of the message were sitting in those services. Perry Green, Raymond Jackson, Lee Vale, you go down the list. Many of the early key leaders of the message were sitting in those message in those services when William Branham is calling out to the national leader of the Klan from on stage, giving him a shout-out. And there are some people, i got to say, John, they just really should be very ashamed of themselves because message people are even on tape saying amen to that sort of stuff. My goodness. It, I mean, and this stuff really happened. It's just unbelievable to me, the, this, the, the level of evidence on this, honestly, when you sit down and look at it. And there's some people in the message, John, I'm afraid this is true. I'm afraid they have a whole lot to hide because the Klan was a terrorist organization who killed a whole lot of black people especially in those years and for the most part they entirely got away with it and anyone connected to all of that stuff definitely has a whole lot to hide and i'm afraid that could be why some people react so viciously to this information i mean you look at mississippi burning right i mean i believe there is no question that stuff was carried out by people connected to roy davis i mean i know for sure i mean even by the fbi purports some of the guys connected to that mississippi burning had been appointed into their positions by roy davis 
right? And then you look what happened when Robert Shelton took over a few years later. You got the Birmingham bombings. You got all the homes and churches and people they blew up, right? The Klan was murdering all kinds of people in those years, right? And anybody linked to the Klan, you've got blood on your hands. I mean, I anybody in the Klan in those years, you've got blood on your hands. And the man orchestrating that stuff, the bombings, the murders, the protests, the executions, the lynchings, was sitting right alongside some of these people in these revival meetings with William Branham in those years. Take it a step further. We're talking about key figures in the message cult who, you know, like my grandfather. There's no way my grandfather did not know this. His impact is minimalized, it was minimalized to just, you know, limited to the Jeffersonville area and to some extent people who visited Jeffersonville. He knew it. He probably didn't share it to anybody who came to Jeffersonville. So likely people who came here to visit had no idea that William Branham is working with the leader of the most notorious domestic terrorist organization of its time. There's no way that my grandfather did not know. You take all of the key figures in the message cult, they all knew. They had to have known. There is no way that these guys did not know. But let's look beyond that for a second. William Branham has a worldwide impact. And I'm talking impact on every splinter group that emerged from this thing. The entire New Apostolic Reformation is built on this thing, Charles. <clears throat> You've got people like Gordon Lindsay. There's no way that Gordon Lindsay did not know that William Branham is working with the key figure in the Ku Klux Klan. Gordon Lindsay published him in Voice of Healing, and he's living in the same neighborhood as the guy. I mean, there's no way that he did not know. And Gordon Lindsay is one of the key reasons why William Branham has a global impact. Gordon Lindsay had to have known. Jack Moore, one of, you know, before Gordon Lindsay's rise to taking over, you've got Jack Moore, you've got all of these key figures in Pentecostalism and in early fundamentalism that were working with William Branham and seeing that Branham is connected to this guy who is the leader of the most notorious domestic terrorist organization in the United States. There's no way these guys did not know this. Charles, you know as well as I do that the moment in which I began publishing this, we've talked about it. Um, some people know, some people don't. The moment I began publishing the Klan-related research, basically what led to this book, Preacher Behind the White Hoods, when I started publishing the white supremacy ties from William Branham to these notorious Klan-supported ministries and, and Klan leaders themselves, when I started publishing this, I got a barrage of attacks. I got technology attacks. I had... Equipment in my home destroyed. I had very expensive equipment stolen. I've had tax like, attacks like you wouldn't believe. I, when I first began this, I was spending between one and one and fifteen hundred, one thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month to fight off the security attacks on the website side to keep the servers running. That's how strong the attack was. I also got a barrage of attacks. Believe it or not from former members of the message cult. Former members, I should say that again, because there are men who, even though that they've left the message, Charles, 
they've entered into this weird new ministry and they don't want people to know that it was connected to this evil thing. And I just, I I don't even know how to describe my feelings on all of this because these people, many of them knew, many of them tried to defend it. Many of them have tried to suppress it. You made a really good point there um, when you mentioned that it really is inconceivable that Gordon Lindsay and Jack Moore, for example, did not know who Roy Davis was, did not know who they publicized in Voice of Healing, did not know, um, did not know, did not know who he was. I mean, it's just inconceivable that they did not know. Jack Moore lived in Treeport. He lived a few blocks away from where Roy Davis burnt his cross in the congressman's front yard, right? I mean, um, he would have, it's inconceivable that he did not see the front page news with Roy Davis's pictures being arrested and him even saying to the newspapers, because Roy Davis was publicly saying, yes, I am the leader of the Klan. Like, Roy Davis was publicly saying it, mask off, right? It's inconceivable that Jack Moore did not know. It is inconceivable that Gordon Lindsay did not know, okay? And now I can I can give them, were they white supremacists involved in all this stuff? You know, I don't know. Maybe not. But they, in, it's inconceivable that they did not know who he was, right? And the fact that <laughs> they never said nothing? I mean, come on. Something, something is not right here, John. And let me read you um, another quote here from William Branham. Um, this is from um, this is from 1957, and William Branham says in this quote, he says, "So one day, I was out here praying long ago. I'll tell you why. Who I was praying for was Roy Davis, and I was praying because he had called me a puppet." And I was praying to God to forgive him for that. So, John, some people ask, I know, was William Branham forced into all this clan stuff against his will? Maybe they were blackmailing him. Maybe they were controlling him. And I think this quote maybe offers us a little clue into that. Because William Branham here is saying he is upset that Roy Davis, the leader of the clan, has called him a puppet. And... There's a lot open to interpretation here, but this quote certainly gives the impression that there may have been some degree of a struggle that happened between Roy Davis and William Branham. Um, And again, whatever the case, you know, we don't know exactly the context here. Roy Davis viewed William Branham as somebody's puppet, and William Branham didn't like it. And see, I've read this quote, and I've read others like it. People have said... Well, they parted ways. You know, William Branham disagreed with them. I think the one that they go to most is William Branham disagreed with Roy Davis on the ordaining of women. <laughs> because that was one of the stories, right? Oh, boy, that's the worst <laughs> thing he ever did, right? Let's let's disagree on that. You mean the cross burnings and the lynchings? You couldn't disagree on that? William Branham was not what he claimed to be by no means. And you've got all these versions of stage persona, right? <clears throat> well... When I read this quote that you read about him praying for Roy Davis, William Branham was with Roy Davis beyond the shadow of a doubt in Jeffersonville, Indiana, when this movement was transitioned to his church. There's no way that he, you know, he even talks about he was with Davis from, I think he mentions the earliest date is 1929. He talks about 
the revivals with Davis. He talks about Davis' ministry in Jeffersonville, and Davis claimed a divine healing ministry back then. And then he's got all of these tours where he's allegedly healing people. William Branham is with him on some of these revival tours. Branham mentions being with Davis on tour. Well, then Davis creates this new version of his stage persona wherein he claims, I just received this gift a year earlier. So he's Davis is reinventing himself and he's giving himself this persona of a person who apparently claimed not to believe this divine healing movement and got converted into it and then became a minister in it. Well, William Branham is just supporting the marketing propaganda of Davis. He's saying we had this disagreement and now we don't. That's the same exact thing that Davis was saying. So if you just look at all of the pieces of the puzzle and ignore the fact that William Branham is lying in each piece, just line the pieces up chronologically, the, the pieces speak there for themselves. William Branham speaks for himself whenever he talks chronologically about what's happening. He is connected to Davis from start to finish. And I, I think that one thing people make a big mistake on this is when you look back at, at, at the Klan and white supremacy and even in terms of Christian identity theology, it's not what I think matches a lot of people's conceptions of it, you know, the popular conception of it. But the, with, it's not about hate. It's not about exterminating people. It's not about, but it is about keeping people in subjection and under control. That's what it is about, okay? It's not about hate and exterminate. It's about keeping people under control, right? And that was their objective here, was to keep people under control and in subjection okay and so long as people stay in their classes and stay under control like they they get along very well they did they know they could get along well but it's when people try to get out of their class try to become something they're not allowed to be in their in this class system um that is when it's a problem okay and you see the same thing repeated in some religious systems today I'll, I'll kind of just drop it at there so anyways you know john as we as we kind of move this episode to wrap it up for me there there is still a lot of fuzziness here about william branham's relationship with roy davis there's stuff here i would i would love to know more but i feel very comfortable saying yeah they were working together but to what ends and to what extent is not exactly clear to me I also feel very comfortable saying that some of William Branham's teachings, which became the message, were most definitely influenced by Roy Davis and the Klan. Absolutely. There's no question that's where William Branham learned serpent seed Christian identity theology from, was his friends in the Klan. And if our listeners want to dig deeper into the evidence that we've talked about today, John, your episode, your website has really the most detailed information out there on this topic. If you search Roy Davis, you can go through the newspaper articles on your website and the government documents at the bottom. And there are well over a thousand pages of evidence, um, newspaper articles, government records, FBI reports on Roy Davis. And I would encourage anyone interested in this topic to actually go through and read all of them. I have. And I would also encourage you to resist the temptation to say all this is made up until such time as you have read through all the documents, okay? And you don't have to take our word for any of this. You can go read the same evidence. And 
In our next episode, we are going to go a little deeper into all of this because all of this does reach a climax before William Branham dies. President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas during November 1963. That led Congress and FBI to launch this massive investigation into the Klan because Roy Davis and the Klan was headquartered in Dallas where Kennedy was assassinated, right? And they were a very logical suspect because they hated Kennedy, okay? And so we can um, delve into that some more in the next episode and see what the effects of that investigation had both on Roy Davis, the Klan, and, and William Branham by proxy. For me, it's this simple. And I, I try very hard in Preacher Behind the White Hoods to paint the picture of what I'm trying to say in this statement. <clears throat> but take Roy Davis out of the picture. Forget the fact that William Branham is working with the imperial wizard of the most notorious, infamous, deadly domestic terrorist organization in the United States. Take that out and just think about agenda. You can find these photographs. You can do a Google search. Just do a search for civil rights in the 1960s and see what the people holding up on their signs. You've got the white supremacists with these signs that say no race mixing. Well, what is one of William Branham's primary doctrines? We don't mix races. You find, you know, all of the people who have black skin holding up these signs. We want equal rights. We want to, why, why do you get the good schools? Why can't we also have good schools? And they're, they're not wanting to be segregated. And you've got the segregationalists who are saying, no, God intended for everything to be separate. Well, go look at what William Branham says about this. He is saying, God is a segregationalist. I am too. You also find him saying, no, I'm not. But look at the cases where he says, I am too. Those are the ones to look at because this is a man who is dishonest about Christianity. He's dishonest about what he believes. This is a man who will accept the a Trinity in one city and say, praise God, we who've accepted you and the Holy Spirit, the third person, the Trinity, comes in our hearts tonight, and then go to another city and say, anybody who does this has the mark of the beast, and then go do it in another city and say, we accept the Trinity. This is a man who does not believe Christianity. This is a man who is an atheist, in my opinion. You cannot take the statements that he says, I support equal rights, and I believe everybody should have equal public schools, and Ignore the parts where he says the opposite. You can't ignore the bad things. If you're in the message, you can't ignore the bad things. I know we're trained to when we were in it. You can't ignore those. If he says the good thing and then says the polar opposite, don't ignore the polar opposite, especially when it is supportive of the worst notorious domestic terrorist organization in its era. This is a very, very bad thing that he's in. So for me, it's just the simple. Look at the agenda. What were they saying? What was William Branham saying? Look at the timeline of that agenda. When were they saying it? When was William Branham saying it? You will find, like the zipper on my coat, it just comes together and fits like the grooves in a zipper. I mean, it is that closely aligned. I try in the book to show this and... Charles, to be honest, it would take 50 of these books to fully paint the picture. There's that much information. It, William Branham has one of the most well-documented 
piles of evidence against him because he was siding with the most notorious group of its era. You can find anything that you want to find. If you want to be out of the message, <laughs> there's ample evidence because William Branham is working with the worst bad guys of its era, working with them. So all you have to do, in my opinion, is just look at the agenda. It's something else. I mean, I've said before, this is the part of the message that when you realize this is here, this is this is the part of the message that makes you feel dirty. I mean, to realize that we were connected in any shape or form to this stuff just makes you feel dirty, you know, and I know it's very hard, as I mentioned before, it's very hard to hear these things. It's very hard to, to come to grips with this, um, but the truth is the message began with close connections to white supremacy. It maintained close connections to the top leaders of the Klan for the entirety of William Branham's life. William Branham and Roy Davis were friends until the day that William Branham died, and if the worst thing that William Branham can say about Roy Davis is that he appointed women preachers, okay, <laughs> I got to say, I got a problem with that, William Branham. You should have not said your problem with him was that. You should have said your problem with him was he was a bigamist and he was living with an underage girl for sex and that you watched him get arrested off the platform and that he was the head of a racist organization. You couldn't tell us that, William Branham, but you could tell us you had a problem with him preaching... Um, for women preachers, God have mercy. God have mercy. You know, there's just so much information. Maybe we should do a master class on this, Charles. <laughs> we could go on for the next five hours, but um, I look forward to the next episode. I think that's, for me, that is, like you said, the climax. Whenever Kennedy is assassinated, it changes the message because now you've got the government cracking down on all of these guys who obviously we're connected. They're investigating them. They may not have found anything, but they were at least investigating them. They may not have known the extent that they're working together because we'll get into it, but all the records were burned, but there's just so much there. And it's more than we can cover. Like I said, at the beginning, it's more than we can cover in a series of podcasts and 60 episodes, but we're going to make a good attempt next week. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.